What happened in Ukraine can also be traced to the fact that Vladimir Putin has simply stayed in power too long. And this is often what happens when leaders stay in power too long. They begin thinking about their place in history. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want a leader of my country thinking about how he or she will be remembered. I want this person to think squarely about what's best for the people. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The world was stunned and spellbound this weekend by images of heavily armed Russian mercenaries taking over a Russian city and racing toward Moscow. Were we about to witness the end of the 23-year reign of Russian President Vladimir Putin? What is the Wagner Group and who is its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin? For answers to these questions, I turned to Brett Forrest. He's an award-winning national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where his investigative work focuses on the former Soviet Union. He has spent years reporting from Russia and Ukraine. It's a dangerous time to be a reporter in Russia. In March, Forrest's Wall Street Journal colleague, Evan Gershkovich, was arrested in Russia on spying charges, which he denies. Gershkovich remains in jail and faces a sentence of up to 20 years. Brett Forrest has a new book, Lost Son, an American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret Wars. In the book, he investigates the mystery of a young American who vanished into Russia's war with Ukraine. I began by asking Brett Forrest to explain what just happened in Russia and how was it resolved. Well, it's a great place to begin. Um, thank you for having me on. I, you know, I, I don't think it's resolved yet. Um, you know, I think this uh, this this story has chapters yet to be written. Um, but I think what what happened here is uh, it really goes to to the the, the uh, fundamental base of um, Russia's military problems and and problems of corruption within the Ministry of Defense. Because when uh, when Russia began having trouble in Ukraine, it realized it had to rely on some sort of non traditional means of support and that was clearly the Wagner paramilitary group which it, which Russia has been using widely around the world for uh, for the past decade um, but this group exists outside of the Ministry of Defense even though it does receive Russian funding um, and because Wagner was so successful comparatively on the Ukrainian battlefield uh, it, it just it just strengthened Yevgeny Progrosian's uh, stature and position and power base, and uh, it allowed him to intensify his rivalry with the uh, the Minister of Defense and the Chief of Staff, and th- it was inevitable. There was going to be, uh, th- you know, this conflict, this rivalry was going to boil over, and and that's what we saw. This is being described, you know, the Wagner mercenary group uh, is being described as. Uh, the Frankenstein monster that came back to bite its creator, which of course is Putin and the Russian security state. Explain that relationship, um, how Wagner came about and how it essentially got off its leash this week. Mm-hmm. Well, Wagner came about in at the very beginning of the Ukraine war in 2014, uh, Many of us remember the so-called little green men that appeared in, uh, in in southern and eastern Ukraine at the time. These were guys who were some of the first uh, who were working with Wagner, you know, former uh, you know, veterans of the Russian special forces who were now being paid as mercenaries. Um, the, the, the business model has evolved. It actually became quite a successful business. Um, and what Wagner has done over the last number of years is, is sort of inject itself into uh, unstable countries that are having trouble with insurgencies, internal insurgencies. And a lot of, you know, you, you look at places like uh, Libya, Central African Republic, Mali, and others, uh, Mozambique as well. They, and these are countries that not only have difficulties internally, but they have pretty considerable natural resources, uh, energy resources, and uh, precious metal resources. And what Wagner has done is it has gone into these countries and made deals with the leadership. Uh, Syria as well, we shouldn't forget uh, its um, 
well-known uh, activities there. But what Wagner's done is it's gone and made deals with these leaders and, and said, hey, we'll, we will go and secure your oil fields, for example, or your gold mine, for example, um, so that it doesn't fall into the hands of your rivals. But in exchange, we're going to take a percentage of what comes out of there. Um, and a lot of that money, well, it's, as you can imagine, quite substantial, has gone back to the Kremlin. So there's been some disagreement over how to characterize what happened. And certainly, you know, the world has been watching this mad dash of armed vehicles and armed convoys to Moscow. Um, what do you think, uh, was this a coup attempt or as Prigozhin now says, it was just a protest and a misunderstanding? I don't think it's either of those things. I think I don't believe, and this is based on my uh, years of working in Russia and and uh, and understanding the country, but also uh, you know reaching out to sources in the wake of what happened over the weekend. Uh, I, I don't think that Prigozhin was intent on overthrowing Putin. I think he was intent on uh, pursuing this rivalry with. Uh, with uh, Sergei Shoigu and Valery Gerasimov, uh, the, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, the, the um, Minister of Defense and the head of the General Staff, Chief General Staff for, for the Russian military. I think he he was fighting, really, Prigozhin was, for his, his, uh, you know, his power because he had been um, – forced all all of all volunteer sort of mercenary fighters were um uh were, were being forced to sign contracts and uh and become loyal to the ministry of defense which was going to sort of pull the rug out under uh prigozhin and wagner so uh, prigozhin was in in mounting this brief aborted sort of effort was really um uh aiming at the minister the ministry of defense and the armed forces. I don't think he was trying to overthrow Putin. And I don't think, like he said, it was some sort of, um, uh, you know, high-minded uh, sort of march for independence. We're hearing various takes on what this means for Putin and his future. Uh, does this show cracks in the Russian military facade that could be a portent of, you know, Putin's downfall, or is it something a lot less than that? Again, it's it's it it could be something in the. It's very hard to know because, um, uh, you know, on on one hand, you would think that uh, a, a paramilitary group wouldn't be able to pose a real political threat to someone who's been in power quite securely for more than twenty years, as Putin has been. But on the other hand, you know, let, let's not forget that this is Russia, and Russia has uh, a lengthy history of armed internal rebellions dating at least to the 16th century. Um, and many of these rebellions over the years were put down successfully. Um, but of course, we we know of in 1917 when um, you know when the, the Romanov dynasty was was overthrown. Um, so it's really hard to know because because Russia, the reason I mentioned that is because it's important to remember that that volatility is very much a part of uh, Russia's character. And uh, uh, as Putin ages, eventually, you know, he's he's human like we all are. Eventually he will, you know, get sick or or uh, sort of lose his grip on things. And somebody is going to replace him now. He has this is the price for the illusion of stability that he's created in Russia over the years. You know. He, he succeeded a president who was really all over the map, and he's given the Russian people, at least for some years, a sense of stability. But he's he's not he, you know there's no political system there. So who comes next? That's always been an open question. What do you think uh, was Putin's motivation for invading Ukraine? Um, it seemed, you know, clearly now it has dominoes are falling in every direction, possibly threatening Putin himself. What was the miscalculation that Putin made and why did he do it in the first place? Well, I think he, he had a couple of different motivations for doing it. One is, um, I mean, fundamentally, if you have, if Russia has a sizable country directly on its border with whom it has uh relations dating back centuries uh and that and this country 
is able to shift confidently to uh, democracy and uh, a working economy. I mean, that, that is a direct threat to the system that, that Putin and his folks have developed in Russia, which is really none of those things. I mean, um, th- that's, that's number one, I think. But also, what happened in Ukraine can also be traced to the fact that Vladimir Putin has simply stayed in power too long. And this is often what happens when leaders stay in power too long. They begin thinking about their place in history. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want a leader of my country thinking about how he or she will be remembered. I want this person to think squarely about what's best for the people. And I don't think that Vladimir Putin really has that in mind anymore for Russians. Um, he's, he's over the years, he's become very, uh, very focused on, on history. Uh, he's, you know, written a lot of papers on this or had them written for him. He's given a lot of very interesting speeches on the matter. Um, and when I say the matter, I'm talking about Ukraine exactly and, and how Ukraine and Russia are related to one another. He sees it very clearly, um, that, uh, you know, that Ukraine is part of Russia. So it's really two separate things here. I think fundamentally one is history and the other is uh ukraine developing into a more sort of western modern country and that posing a threat to the russian system you've lived in both russia and uh, kiev and you had a a memorable dispatch for the wall street journal uh, on the eve of the invasion the russian invasion of ukraine and its attack on kiev talk about what Kiev is, you know, what it looks and feels like, and what those days leading up to the invasion were like for you. Boy, a lot to unpack there, David. Um, it's uh, yeah, I was I was in Ukraine. I arrived uh, in January 2022 because, as you remember, Russia was building up troops along the border, and we didn't, you know, we were all trying to figure out what Putin's intentions were. So, it was important for us to have a few extra bodies in the country uh, in case something broke out. Um, So I was in Kiev when the war began, February 24th. And I remember the, you know, the first explosions waking me up that morning. I think it was about 4 a.m. And uh, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I didn't think that Putin was going to actually do it because I didn't think it was in Russia's best interest. I didn't think it was in Russia's national interest. And as we've seen, it, it really isn't. Um, and, and I also knew that, like everybody knows, w- once you once you begin a war, it's very hard to stop it. So uh, Kiev, to me, I've been going there for 20 years. I've been working there in, in and out for 20 years. I, I lived in Kiev for, at one point when I lived in Moscow, where I lived for five years. I was spending a lot of time in Kiev and, and more widely throughout Ukraine. And I, the country to me is, is very close to my heart. Um, I have a lot of great friendships there. There are a lot of really interesting and dazzling and um, really sharp and intelligent people there. Um, and, you know, Kiev is, is an old city. It has, uh, you know, it just has an interesting heritage and history to it. Uh, and it's always had this sort of problem with Russia. Uh, they they do share somewhat uh, an origin story, and so you know what we saw from Ukrainian independence in 1991 until 2014 was really this sort of this rare period of peace between the two countries. And now, of course, we've seen you know that cup spill over. Images we're seeing out of Ukraine are are staggering. I mean, the scale of destructions, of modern European cities being reduced to rubble. Uh, what is What goes through your mind? These are places that you've traveled uh, as you see these images and perhaps as you've seen firsthand. It's, it's difficult to deal with. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it. I'd, I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd, I'd never covered a war. I was always more interested in, in say, intrigue rather than danger. Um, but this this experience was very personal to me because I have so much time spent in each country and, and I'm familiar with how these people are related to one another, have dealt with each other. Um, and, uh, yeah, seeing, seeing one, one country attempt to wipe the other away, uh, is it's, it's, it's very hard to accept. And, uh, yeah, I, I just remember years and years ago, uh, I was still in school, but, 
but uh, when Russia was fighting against the uh, the Chechen independence movement, and this was specifically the second Czech- Chechen war, which Vladimir Putin administered when he was a new president, and um, and they they leveled the Chechen capital of Grozny. I'm sure you probably remember those images. Yeah, and um, you know I, I've been to Grozny since, and it's it's been rebuilt, and it's it's sort of it's it's a working city, and there are people living there and going about their lives. But those images from back then, you can sort of overlay them onto the cities of, you know, for example, Mariupol or Bakhmut or the other cities that that many people have learned about recently, unfortunately, in negative ways. It's it, it's just it seems to go back to some old sort of Russian playbook. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that I told myself as as the war broke out and I saw what Russian troops were doing and how they were targeting civilians. I mean, I hate I hated to say this to myself, but but it really it sprang up to my mind. I just said, you know, they're reverting to form. You were one of the first Western reporters into Bucha outside of Kiev. And for people who don't recall what that was, talk about what you found when you entered the city. Um, yeah. What did you find there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Bucha is, is a well-to-do suburb, not far from Kiev. And, uh, and this was, these are the very first days of April last year, 2022. And I was in Kiev when I, when I, found, I saw a picture on social media of a couple of bodies uh, that on the street somewhere with their wrists fastened behind their backs. And I learned that this was in Bucha and just got it immediately in a car and drove out there. Uh, had to wade through a lot of sort of carnage of uh, tanks and other armored vehicles that had been blown up and just, they're just, and uh, stores and, and residents, uh, residences that just had been destroyed. And, you know, very, very uh, you know, cinematic um, things to look at. But when we got into Bucha, they were just uh, the the local militia was just retaking the town, just reinstalling the Ukrainian flag on the mayor's office. And, um, yeah, I realized that it was just incredible timing. Um, and because the Russian military had just withdrawn its troops from around Kiev just the day before. Um, and so now we were able to, to see what they left behind after about a month or so of uh, having occupied. Bucha and other other nearby towns and cities and you know it, the town because the Ukrainian authorities had had no time to clean it up I mean the town was completely raw and I won't go into great detail about what I saw because it was there was a lot of human carnage there were you know there were there were hundreds of bodies scattered scattered around the town in all sorts of conditions and um, you know I we didn't know yet when I drove in there we didn't know yet what Bucha was but that day, that first day, I was I was there for that day and six more days afterwards. But but especially that first day, there there came a point during uh, my talks with people and driving around town and and seeing the carnage that I it, it dawned on me what I was looking at. I was looking at atrocities, war crimes, and uh, when I talked to more and more survivors about um, you know what they had seen and experienced, I realized that you know this was the event that. Um, that really became the face of Russia's war in Ukraine. What do you think, Bucha, the story that it foretold, um, the kind of carnage and the kind of, you know, the nature of the atrocities, the very kind of up close and personal, you know, marching people out and executing them in the street in front of their homes. What did that sort of foretell? Well, I think it's uh, it's it was sort of the the capstone on uh, reports and information that we were hearing from uh, from other parts of the country, the the sort of the wanton targeting of civilians, either by using guided missiles or unguided munitions uh, that were that were hitting apartment buildings or or train stations or bus stations bus stops or yeah you know. Um, you know tanks rolling up to apartment buildings and, and firing shells directly into residences. Bucha sort of encapsulated all of that for us. And in terms of what it foretold, I think it, it just, it did, I mean, to me, it, it told me something that maybe I already knew, which was that Russia w- was, was willing to go to the very bottom morally 
to uh, to try and uh, demoralize the Ukrainian people and and pressure Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to you know to make some sort of concession. But yeah, clearly, I don't think that's going to work. Um, yeah, the the events in Bucha really, um, you know, I mean, it was the the reason they happened. I think were there were a couple different reasons. One was Russian troops had been waylaid there, delayed there from from actually going into Ukraine or into Kiev uh, by Ukrainian forces. So they were stuck there for about a month and they were scared. They were scared and feeling outnumbered. And so their response was to, you know, to, to lock people in the town. And anytime someone tried to leave, they had snipers just take them out. It was that. And it was also sort of drunk, young uh, recruits into the Russian army who'd grown up under Putin and had never known any other leader and had, you know, basically gotten drunk on on cheap booze, but also drunk on on Putin's own rhetoric about Ukraine and the and the presence of Nazis there and, and how they were sort of lesser people and all that just uh, combusted. How does this war end? If you look into your crystal ball, what are the likely, what do you see as the likely steps or the things that would be sufficiently in Putin's interest that it it comes to an end? Yeah, that's the question we all want to answer, isn't it? And um, I've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about that. And and there is no, no knowable answer at the moment um, because the, the problem is that each side has sunk such a great investment into this war and at times each side has thought that is winning uh and and, and then what when that's the the case it's very hard to bring the two sides to the negotiating table the, from the ukraine's perspective they sacrificed so much and fought so bravely that um you know they're they're unwilling to give an inch and i understand that um because on top of it they they know that whenever the war ends the geography will remain the same and that Russia will remain a neighbor and that Russia, knowing Russia's ways, will uh, will be able to start up hostilities at, at any moment down the road. So Ukraine really needs some sort of security guarantees. And that's one reason why some NATO members, especially in Eastern and Central Europe, keep talking more loudly about wanting Ukraine to join the alliance. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be a realistic option at the moment that could change. Um, but you could see possibly how something like that could be acceptable to Ukraine and, and they would be willing to give something up for it. Um, from, the, from the Russian perspective, it's, it's really hard to see how anything short of sort of total victory for the Russians would, would bring them to the table. But then again, we started out our conversation with the Wagner uprising. I mean, that's not many people predicted that I don't think. And, and that's what happens when you, when you wage an unsuccessful war, you know, sometimes it can boomerang back against you. Um, So it's, it's hard to know, of course, how it will end, but I think these are among the most important things to consider. I want to ask you about your, uh, colleague Evan Gershkovich. Um, why do you think he was arrested? He was doing the work that you do and others do in Russia every day. Foreign reporters are not a new thing in Russia. What do you think happened that caused his arrest? Well, it's very hard for me to speculate on that. One, one because I'm, I don't like to be in the speculation business. You know, we're very focused on what we can discover and verify. Um, and also because I don't, I don't want to get involved in saying things that might jeopardize his position there. Um, what I can say is that, you know, Evan is a, a very dedicated and knowledgeable and resourceful journalist, and he was simply doing his job over there. Um, but I, I can also say that, that this, uh, this practice of hostage diplomacy, if, if in, indeed that's what Evan is a part of. I'm not sure, but um, you know, the trades that we've seen recently in the last year or so of, uh, you know, of course, the most famous one is Brittany Griner for uh, the N- the uh, WNBA player for uh, Victor Boot, the Russian arms dealer, uh, 
but then also there was another trade right around the same time of um, uh, Konstantin Yaroshenko, Russian convicted drug pilot uh, for Trevor Reed, former U.S. Marine. These, th- th- this whole hostage diplomacy uh, thing that Russia has been pursuing in recent years, it just seems it's just the Kremlin seems to be ramping it up. Um, there are dozens, if not more, of Americans in Russian custody right now, some under what could be considered questionable con- uh, conditions, legal conditions. Um, and I don't know Russia's goal in taking Evan Gershkovich, our colleague at the Journal, but I do know that for years and years, Russia was, I mean, Russian officials, let's say, were frustrated by the fact that they, that while they had clamped down on domestic media in Russia, that that foreign reporters were still able to come over to Russia, be accredited, and kind of say whatever they wanted. So, um, you know, there there are a lot of factors in play, and I just hope that Evan is able to come home soon. Will you return to Russia, or is there anyone from the journal there now? There's no one uh, from us there now. And, uh, you know, just, it just doesn't seem to be a smart thing to do. That could change, of course, and probably will change at some point down the road. I don't know when, but uh, I don't have any plans to go there. I, you know, I, after the war store, after the, like, not the war, but the invasion, the full scale invasion last year, uh, I was speaking about this possibility with some colleagues. And I just, I just felt like something fundamental had, had really changed and turned because forever working in Russia uh, for myself and other Western colleagues, it, it felt like we had, like we were protected because we were Western journalists with, you know, with a journalist visa, we were accredited through the ministry, foreign ministry there. Um, and while Russia had its own dangers, um, I never felt like, I was in the the crosshairs of the state, but after the invasion, when uh, when Russia began enacting new laws about uh, you know criticizing the war or even calling it a war in, in Russia, um, I began to feel like maybe maybe the state had had taken a turn and was now looking at all of us as a target. So I don't really feel the urge to go there at the moment. Brett, before we get to your book, I promise we will, uh, I want to hear a little more about your uh, journey as a journalist. What brought you to this? Because I know it relates to why you took up this book. You uh, talk a lot about how you identify with the subject of your book. Right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's definitely a question that I've been asked before. Uh, why did you move to Russia? How, you know, How did you come to live in Moscow? Uh, and, uh, I was living in New York at the time. This is 2002. So quite some time ago. And a friend of mine, uh, got a job, a friend of mine from New York, got a job in Russia. And he started telling me stories that really intrigued me. Um, and so I resolved simply to go visit him for a couple of weeks. I wanted to walk on red square and, you know, I knew about, uh, the history that, that our two countries shared with the cold war and, and, uh, and it was fascinating to me that our relationship had suddenly changed and, and was now turning into something else, something sort of cooperative and, and even kind of friendly. I mean, these were very different times than today. Um, and I was interested, of course, in Russian literature and and, uh, and, uh, and Russian history itself. And, and uh, so I went over there just with a, a, a broad curiosity about the country, but but knew very little about it, um, quite honestly. And I knew nothing about modern Russia. And the people I met there on that first trip really turned my head and showed me what a fascinating place it was. Um, you know, Moscow, the largest city in Europe, filled with really interesting, fascinating people. Again, a very different time then than now. Uh, Vladimir Putin was still pretty new in office. He was still figuring out what kind of leader he wanted to be. You know, he was, he, he'd, he'd sort of, he'd made a, what seemed to be a, a close political or at least diplomatic relationship with our president, George W. Bush at the time, and spent time with him on his ranch in Texas, you know? So, um, 
when I when I got to Russia, I just to Moscow especially, I I really really felt like some connection to the place, and I resolved to to move there and relocate myself from New York, and with a couple goals in mind. You know, I wanted to learn the language, learn the culture, but also broaden myself as a as a reporter and as a journalist, and um, and I lived there for five years, and it was really the adventure of a lifetime. While I was living in Russia, I, in Moscow, I was traveling broadly throughout the country for assignments. I was writing, I was a magazine freelancer writing for all kinds of different magazines. And I was also spending a lot of time in Ukraine and traveling around that country um, for work and for pleasure. And I, just, I made a lot of good friends and fast friends and uh, people with interesting connections and started building out a source network in these places. And and that that whole experience really did change the trajectory of my uh, personal and professional life. Let's move on to your latest book, Lost Son. Um, how did you first hear about the story of Billy Riley? How did you get on to this story? Well, I was um, I had lunch one day with a source of mine uh, in New York, in, in Manhattan, in uh, Rockefeller Center, just near that the famous skating rink there. A guy named Bob Forsman, who um, who had been in banking in Russia and Ukraine for for a long time and had a lot of really interesting connections over there. And he told me that he had heard about something that he wanted to share with me, but that the time wasn't right. Yet. And, you know, as a reporter, when you hear that, you you know, you kind of want to grab the guy by the lapels and say, well, you know, what is it? Why can't you tell me? But it took a little while, maybe a month or so or a couple of months. And, uh, and, and he called me and I was in the uh, Wall Street Journal office in Washington that day. And and he said, OK, I'm ready to tell you what this thing is. And he told me he didn't know much about it. But, but this is what he told me. He said there was a young man from Michigan named Billy Riley who had worked for the FBI for five years, mostly in counterterrorism. And he had gone to Russia in 2015 and disappeared there. And very soon after his disappearance, his FBI handler came to the family home in Michigan, professed ignorance of Billy's trip there to, to Russia and started confiscating devices before ultimately shutting out the family. And I sat up in my chair right away because I saw, I saw real narrative potential and I also saw a chance possibly to help out a family that was in need. What? So this is, I mean, that is the thinnest of leads <laughs> that <laughs> is going to require, you know, global travel uh, to, you know, even begin to sort it out. Say a little bit more about Billy Riley's relationship with the FBI. He was not, of course, an FBI agent. Right, right. Um, so Billy was what's called a confidential human source or a CHS. And we all have seen FBI agents in action in movies and TV shows, right? And we, we know that they sort of persuade people to wear wires and, and you know, help them develop evidence that they can use in court etc well after 9-11 remember 9-11 was the signal failure of the fbi they're they're in charge of counterterrorism um and after 9-11 uh capitol hill and the administration mandated that the fbi do more to prevent a repeat so they they took all of their informants and cooperators and they recategorized them in this thing called confidential human source and then they started adding all sorts of new people, people like Billy Riley, who would help them not necessarily develop evidence to be used in court, but develop intelligence that would enable the FBI at home and abroad to get ahead of terrorist conspiracy and short circuit it before something could happen. Right. Uh, so Billy, he was just getting ready to graduate college when the FBI knocked on his door. The FBI had become aware of his internet traffic because he had come of age after 9-11, which had happened when he was in high school. And that had really uh, changed the course of his life. He'd become super, he'd become fascinated in uh, uh, global conflicts, uh, foreign languages, and, uh, and, and sort of the way that some people were, were um, 
you know, laying their lives on the line for causes they believed in. I mean, he was living in a town called Oxford, Michigan, outside of Detroit, was which is sort of a sleepy area, and he he felt stifled there. Um, so he was reaching out online sometimes to people who were in these sort of jihadi chat rooms. That came to the attention of the FBI, and they were actually impressed by his abilities online, his uh, his understanding of the Middle East and uh and terror groups and and the people who populated them and uh and they felt like they could they could use him so they signed him up as a chs so he becomes a confidential human source what does that mean for practical purposes um what was his work for them well the chs program has thousands of people in it and they do all sorts of different things depending on their access to criminal or terrorist conspiracy, you know, people they might know, uh, what's what skills they have. For example, you know, Billy's language abilities and his his uh, his online skill. Uh, but but for Billy specifically, he initially started out um, filing reports from home to his FBI handlers about events in the Middle East because he was he was able to use his Arabic language knowledge. And his understanding of where to find sort of um, up to the minute information and news, um, and he and he was filing these reports that were actually quite sophisticated and knowledgeable. Uh, he was a good writer. He was a good researcher, um, and these were reports that just would get fed into the larger um, U.S. intelligence uh, system and be combined with all sorts of other pieces of intelligence. That's how it started. It grew. His relationship grew with the FBI. He worked for them for five years, and he eventually started going out into the field around Detroit. Uh, you know, the Detroit area has a, a pretty large, sizable um, Arab Muslim population, which was something that the FBI focused on intently after 9-11. And so his, his handlers were sending him out into the field to contact investigative targets he was using aliases. He was contacting them online and then meeting them in person. Um, and he, you know, his his relationship with the FBI led him into ever more interesting and more dangerous situations. You know, he was also reaching out to people internationally online, people who had supposed connections to ISIS and were ISIS recruiters and were helping people, um, you know, get travel to Turkey and and. Uh, and cross illegally into Syria to, to you know, to meet up with ISIS. Uh, he was also talking to, to uh, terrorist affiliates who were encouraging him to, to stage attacks in Detroit, um, terrorist attacks. So his his relationship with the FBI just as the further it went, uh, it became sort of more interesting to him, but also kind of scary to him. So ultimately, Billy travels to Russia. And that's where the trail goes cold. Um, what made him, what drew him to Russia? Well, this is sort of one of the fundamental questions of the book and, and of the case. Um, we, When I heard about the case from Bob Forsman initially, that was one of the questions that I asked myself. Was he sent, did the FBI or another investigative or intelligence agency send Billy to Russia? Or did he go on his own in search of adventure? Or was it the truth somewhere in between the two? Uh, that's what I set out to find in addition to simply trying to find out where he was. Um, you know, Billy talked about, he was 28 years old when he went to Russia and he talked about it quite openly with his parents, this, this urge to have an adventure before he turns 30. You know, he'd never lived away from home. He had a very small or even non-existent social circle. Uh, he was interested in women, but he had he had no experience with them, really. Um, he wanted to get married and have a family. He wanted to kind of get his life moving, but he never could really figure out how to do it. Um, and so you can you can see the Russia trip as growing out of these frustrated urges, Uh but, but on the other hand, um, you know, we have clear evidence that the FBI prevaricated with the family about their involvement in his Russia trip. You know, the, the handler came to his FBI handler, Billy's handler, came to the house, as I mentioned, right after his communications dropped and said he didn't know anything about the trip. 
But the parents, not long after that, found uh, clear proof, clear evidence uh, that the FBI was lying to them and that the FBI did, in fact, know quite a bit about Billy's Russia travel. So that's one of the fundamental mysteries. Um, you know, what was he, why did he go over there? What was his goal uh, and who was responsible? How did you begin to unravel this? I mean, you're, you're kind of navigating between worlds of intelligence, of mercenaries, of mobsters. I mean, there's so many shadowy figures that, you know, <laughs> have fingerprints on this. Uh, tell me your process in trying to unravel this and also stay safe yourself. Right. Well, you said you said earlier that the, the, the initial lead was was very thin. And uh, boy, was it ever, you know, because you're I knew that I knew that for the paper, because just to, to be clear, this book began as an article for The Wall Street Journal. And I knew that I knew that my editors were going to require me to 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 really uncover um, some fundamental portions of this mystery before the article could even really be considered for publication. Right. Um, and I knew I had a vague idea about what kind of work that would require and, and also what kind of luck, because, because part of reporting is luck, especially when you're doing this kind of, this kind of reporting. So my process, you know, the very first thing I needed to do was try and understand Billy and try and understand, try and gather all of the information, or at least as much of it as we could, that that was verifiable and that existed and that was already in hand. So the the Riley's, um, Billy's parents, Terry and Bill Riley, were incredibly open with me as I got to know them. And they shared some hard drives on computers that had been left behind, um, text message strings, all, all sorts of stuff, whatever they had, they, they gave me. And so that was number one, to try and figure out who, who Billy was, and also perhaps discover among all these materials bits and pieces that could connect and begin to form some kind of picture. But fundamentally, I knew that the answer to this mystery was in Russia and that, you know, I was going to have to travel there and roll up my sleeves and work my network of sources there. What do you hope people take away from this story, which, you know, on a micro level is the story of a a young man pursuing an adventure uh, and encountering forces much larger and darker than him? Um, but what's the bigger takeaway in your mind? I think there's several. One takeaway for me is that, you know, Billy to me is sort of, sort of a bridge between 9-11 and the war in Ukraine. I remember I was in New York when 9-11 happened, and I just remember uh, so much being written and said about the attacks immediately in their aftermath. But um, but I also felt like we're not really going to know what that means for a long time. And I think Billy, Billy shows... Um, to some degree, what 9-11 did to us, you know, 9-11, what it did to Billy is it, it completely changed his course because he, he wanted to know why the attacks had happened, you know, and it, and 9-11 brought to Billy, it brought him, it brought these issues of global importance to this small town outside of Detroit, you know, 9-11 brought all these issues to home for, for, for just regular folks in the U.S. who really in, in you know, wouldn't necessarily have encountered them. And it changed a lot of people's lives. I mean, Billy himself became fascinated with Islam and, and he converted to Islam. Um, so I think that's one thing that, that I hope hopefully people will take away from this book is just how, uh, how such a, a, a you know, seismic event like 9-11 can, it, it can take years or perhaps decades for us to really see how it has changed us. Um, and I think Billy's, Billy's, the fascinations that he developed because of 9-11 led him into the war in Ukraine. Um, 
So that's that's one thing. But the, there's another really important part of this book that I hope people take away from it, and that is the 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 serious need for constant oversight of the FBI and our our other law enforcement and intelligence bodies, because you know the FBI. Look, Billy Riley was when he went to Russia, he was an adult. He was 28 years old. He he didn't have to work for the FBI as a CHS. He could have left the relationship at any time. He didn't have to go to Russia. He made his own choices. But he did work for the government for five years. And and when he was in trouble in Russia, when he disappeared in Russia, the FBI turned its back on him and began lying to his family. And I just think that, you know, when we when we give people in government special powers, they owe us something in return. They owe us some kind of honesty. And the FBI still hasn't really answered for what happened to Billy Riley and its role in it. I want to ask your, you know, your process as a journalist working in Russia, which, as we know from the fate of uh, your colleague, Evan Gershkovich, uh, is a dangerous job, uh, particularly when you're snooping around trying to find things out that people don't want you to find out. Um, you've reported that the Committee to Protect Journalists currently lists 19 journalists in Russian jails, um, which is the highest number since 1992. Talk about being a reporter in Russia and um, what you knew was going on. You know, Were you being tailed, surveilled, wiretapped? What's the everyday life of a reporter there? Well, I'll just sort of continue with what I said earlier, and that is that, um, you know, 20 years ago or so, or even you know, 15 years ago, uh, you felt like you had special status and you were protected and nothing bad was going to happen to you. I mean, bad things that happened to you would, co would come more commonly from uh, individual people you wrote about who didn't like what you said or... Uh, business interests or criminal interests but it, it wouldn't the threat wouldn't come from the state right um, but that that has all changed or in recent years and um, I mean that the effect really is that it, it's 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 multifold but one effect is um, you know self-censorship because then you you might then think twice about what you're going to say about uh, a company or a government agency, et cetera, in, in your writing. Um, I, when I was there, I always felt like there are, there's some kind of, there's a third rail out there. Right. And it's probably best not to attempt to touch it. Um, because is it, is it, is it worth it? You know, is the risk worth it? Um, you know, they, because for years and years, Domestic journalists in Russia were under threat. Many, as as you know, I'm sure, have been murdered over the years. Uh, and there was really only one American, Paul Klebnikov, if you remember, who was a Russian-American who uh, at the time was the editor of the Russian edition of Forbes magazine. And he was gunned down and murdered in the, in, in the streets of Moscow. But he was really the only American. And... Uh, and the understanding among a lot of people was, okay, well, they kind of considered him to be Russian because he had a Russian background. And, and also he was uh, a very good reporter and he was delving into um, maybe some matters that, uh, you know, that, that were inherently dangerous. I'm not blaming him by any means, but that was the, maybe the accepted wisdom about what had happened to him. It was the, the, story, us, the story you told yourself to feel okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people, yeah, that happens, right? When um, when something terrible like that goes down, um, but uh, yeah, but I, but 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 now, even before the wider invasion last year in Russia, I just I've felt like things really clamped down. You know, Russia used to be a place where people were were eager to talk to you if you were a Westerner or an American journalist. They, they valued the exchange. You know, they wanted to know about what was going on in, in our country. They wanted to have that kind of line of communication. But over the years, as, uh, as Putin really clamped down 
on society, um, those kinds of contacts really became a risk and a threat for Russian officials. How are you and the journal getting the story out uh, now of what's going on inside Russia? Well, it's made more difficult, of course, by the fact of Evans' imprisonment and our subsequent pullout of, from the country. Um, but you know, I I have a lot of really talented and resourceful colleagues and people who have broad experience, lengthy experience in Russia, and as you well know. A uh, fundamental part of this job is developing sources and building out a source network and people who have access to information and are willing from time to time to to share it. And uh, and that's really that's really how we're collecting uh, information and forming stories now is is really you know, a lot of it was by phone. What do you as you look uh, ahead for this part of the world that you've have both a lot of time and experience and emotion. What do you think the future is going to be for a post-war Ukraine? Uh, yeah, I've thought a lot about that myself. And it, it's, I've, I've imagined a post-war Ukraine possibly being a little bit smaller than it is now. Um, it's hard for me to imagine Ukraine ejecting Russian troops entirely from its territory, and I'm including Crimea and Donbass. Um, you know, in the end, Ukraine just might have to give something up. Um, again, it's hard. I, I don't like to be in the prediction business because you can easily look foolish uh, down the road. Um, but I think a post-war Ukraine, I think it's clear to, to just about anybody, is going to be fully looking west, whereas in the past, it had a troubled sort of internal relationship with itself because a lot of a lot of people identified with Russia, a lot of other people identified with the West. But of course, after this whole debacle, if you can call a war that, um, you know, Ukraine will be more steadfastly looking to the West, and I think that will that will enable the West to to give Ukraine a, an even stronger helping hand to fight problems of corruption and other things that have sort of blocked the, the relationship from becoming closer. So I think in the end, you know, the, the, this will, if you can say this, this will, you know, be a positive for Ukraine. Well, Brett Forrest, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, Dave. It's been great speaking with you. Brett Forrest is a national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal. His newest book is Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret Wars. <laughs>